Well, good morning, everybody. Um, for those of you that don't know me, uh, I'm Ian Clary. I'm a member at Calvary Redeeming Grace Church. Uh, I also teach theology at Colorado Christian University. Uh, I moved here about six years ago, just over that, from Canada. And so I'm super happy today to have one of my countrymen, uh, also from Canada, coming to speak and address us. Uh, so uh, Mark Jones uh, has been a friend of mine for I think almost 20 years now and so it's just been really really fun to just be able to reconnect with him and his family. He's sitting in the back there with Katie and Thomas. Uh, they came down a couple or I guess yesterday from Vancouver where Mark pastors at Faith Presbyterian Church which is a PCA church in Vancouver up in Canada. If you know anything about Canadians um, we suffer from a malady called tall poppy syndrome. So that's where like anybody in Canada who kind of rises up a little bit higher than the rest of the poppies, we like to cut them down. And so that's normal. We don't normally like you Americans, like all the big flashy introductions. He wrote this, he did that. And I just want to, all I want to do is just make fun of him the whole time. But I will refrain. I realize I'm in America. I need to do as you guys do. So, um, but kidding aside, Mark's had a huge imp impact on me over the years theologically, both in terms of the books that he's written, classics like Knowing Christ, if you've got that, God Is, which I actually use as a textbook at CCU. So a number of my students here have read that book because I've forced you to. Um, and then uh, recently he uh, edited an uh, edition of Stephen Charnick's Existence and Attributes of God, which is absolutely outstanding. It just looks beautiful on the shelf. And then he's going to be addressing us today on a very kind of difficult doctrine, uh, the doctrine of human sin, uh, based upon the book that he wrote, Knowing, uh, Knowing Sin. Um, I tell my students when I lecture on the doctrine of sin, this is really important for us to understand, not because we want to be dour and inward-looking, but the, if we, we understand our sin, we understand Christ as Redeemer even more. And I think one of the hallmarks of Mark's thought is his like, singular focus on the person of Christ and how Christ affects everything. So it's a privilege, Mark, to have you here. Glad to be able to hang out, come on up, and, uh, and share with us about a dark topic, but one that we'll eventually, hopefully by Sunday, feel a little bit better about, right? Uh, I've I'm, I'm been very... Uh warmed by the welcome that's been offered to uh, myself and my, my two kids that I brought. I was offered the chance to bring my whole family, but uh, we would probably all start a fight, so I brought two in the hope that we can behave ourselves, and um, so far so good. I just um, need to keep them sleeping. That usually works. So we're, um, we're very happy to be here. Colorado's a great, great state. I, I didn't need much convincing to, to come, and uh, I do like the idea of Colorado Christian University for uh, at least one of my kids. The others will have to work for his tuition fees. They'll go and get jobs, and so one, well, I'm going to pick one, uh, and he can go to school. <laughs> but um, not the one here, actually. He's probably mad now, um, thinking, what? I didn't know about this. So, uh, speaking about sin, uh, I'm going to be topic, talking on this topic, uh, and it's not, I mean, it does sound dour, but it, I, it won't be. I, I don't even think today it needs to be. I know you're hoping by Sunday things will sort themselves out, but I think today will be okay. So, uh, I don't really have a text that I'm going to springboard uh, off of, but I do um, have a few points that I'm going to bring up, and uh, you know what? It's really funny is I did a conference last week at, um, at Washington State, 
uh, to a bunch of young adults, and I, I just pulled out the notes that I used for that conference, and I was like, what the is this? Um, this is on a totally different topic. Uh, I almost talked to you about the perseverance of weak Christians. So, um, yeah, that was a bit scary. I lost my, my thought there. Um, so, yeah, sin is the topic, right? <laughs> That's when you know you go around speaking too much. You just pull out some talk and you go, whoa. So um, we're going to talk about sin. And uh, I think one of the classic things that happens at conferences, if you go to especially a big conference, like uh, let's say a Ligonier conference, and the conference is on the holiness of God, and then you have all the guys who sit on the nice couches getting interviewed, and they say, and what is the number one problem in the church today? And they go, well, you know, it's that we have lost the sense of God's holiness, and everyone nods their head, and yeah, very profound, you know, and it's because, well, the conference is on the holiness of God. Of course, that's the biggest problem in the church today, and thankfully, Ligonier are correcting that problem. Thank you. And uh, you go down the road to the, the other conference, and it's on eschatology, and uh, of course, and um, if you uh, say, well, what is it that we really need to recapture in the church? It's like a good understanding of eschatology. So... Uh, what is the number one major issue in the church today? It is that we don't really have a proper understanding of sin. Uh, so I'm just going to get that out of the way with and uh, say this is the most important topic since you're here. And um, as a pastor, I will say that uh, one of the areas I think pastors most struggle to preach well on is not saying the word sin and saying Jesus died for our sins, but actually really bringing out the multifaceted nature of sin among human beings individually, corporately, preaching in a way where you go, yeah, that's a very specific sin that I feel in the depths of my being and feel convicted by um, to talk about pride and unbelief and all of these various types of manifestations of the sin that is in us. I think that's a, a real weakness. It's one I struggle with myself and always seeking to be better, to zero in on what human nature is really like apart from the grace of God. So uh, I do think it is a, a, an issue, and I think it's something that you need to really take heed to in your own life. Um, to be merciful to sin is to be cruel to yourself and to uh, not really understand the doctrine of sin is, in a certain sense, to be cruel to yourself as well, because the less you understand your sin, the less you will inevitably understand the doctrine of Christ, redemption, the grace of God, and so on and so forth. In other words, if you have a very weak, anemic view of sin, it's very hard to have a robust, powerful, life-changing view of grace, of Jesus, and so on. So while it may be a somewhat dour topic, it really doesn't need to be. And anyone who walks out of here feeling just dour, maybe a little bit dour would be fine, but just dour, then uh, the failure has been on my part. So um, one of the, the, the quotes that, that I really like from the Puritans, and I, I, I find that Puritans have a colorful way with language, but uh, Ralph Venning, he was a Puritan who wrote a book on sin, and he says, many who feel the pain which sin brought are not aware of the sin which brought the pain. And what he's talking about is original sin. Now, the only, it's been said, the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith, one where we actually live by sight and not by faith. So think about 
We live by faith, not by sight when it comes to Christ who's seated at the right hand of God. We trust in God's promises that all things work together for good. Uh, those types of things are things whereby we, we rise above by faith to believe them. But sin is actually uh, the realm in which we live by sight. We see it. There's no debate it is empirically verifiable all over the world. You don't need to just stay in Colorado. You can go to the, the deepest recesses of Calcutta, South Africa, Australia, especially Holland, and um, you'll find that there are sinners everywhere. It is uh, no respecter of persons. And speaking of Holland, Herman Bavink said, sin ruins the entire creation converting its righteousness into guilt, its holiness into impurity, its glory into shame, its blessedness into misery, its harmony into disorder, and its light into darkness. And uh, that basically is one of the, the crystal clear sort of uh, definitions of the implications of what sin did. Everything that was good became bad. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves is, where did sin come from? Satan appears in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, but there's little background for his appearance. He just sort of appears in uh, a garden, in a temple, where Adam has been created, and along with his wife Eve, uh, all of a sudden there's an intruder into the garden, and we, we aren't really given any account as to how he got there, why he got there, and you need the rest of sort of biblical revelation to put some pieces together. But we do know a few things about Satan from the early chapters of Genesis. We know that he is a liar, we know that he is a murderer, and we know that he is cursed, and you see how God curses him. And then you find out that Satan has offspring, not just the, the angels that fell with him, a third of the angels, but also he has offspring in the book of Genesis, and you have a, a war of two seeds. So think about Cain for just a moment. If you go to Genesis chapter 4, you read that Cain is a liar, Cain is a murderer, and then Cain is cursed. He takes on the characteristics of his father, the devil. And when Christ is debating with the Pharisees in, in John chapter 8, they are liars, they are murderers, and they are ultimately cursed. And so these characteristics are characteristics that are uh, remarkably profound in the sense that the devil has his children, just as God has his children. Now later on in, in Ezekiel chapter 28 and verses uh, 11 to 19, there's the proud king of Tyre, and, and, and many understand this to also be sort of double fulfillment of Satan. You have in Isaiah chapter 14, uh, the fallen king of Babylon, and the language that's used also seems to fit the language of, of the devil. And then you have Jude saying, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. So when we see the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 and we see the mayhem he causes, we ask where did he come from and how did he get there and what was the initial sin that brought him into Eden to cause so much mayhem? And most theologians over the years have said that the major sins were those of authority and pride. Anselm wrote a classic work on the fall of the devil and he highlights the issue of uh, the devil setting his will against God to be his equal. 
And so there's an authority issue, and when there's an authority issue, there's always a pride issue. So if the devil's setting himself against God in terms of wanting that authority, there's a pride issue. So notice Paul, when he speaks in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, he speaks about um, how elders must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So there's a pride issue there. And of course, interestingly, it's in the context of having authority in the church, because that is one of the roles that elders have. Now, you'll see that uh, the devil doesn't change then. If that was the sin of pride and authority that led him to the place where he would try to overthrow the human race, you'll see that he continues those behavioral instincts towards others. In fact, he tempts Jesus to do what? To worship him. That tells us that he wanted God's glory in the beginning, the authority and pride, and he still wants God's glory now. And that is why he wanted Jesus to worship him. If you just worship me, you can have everything. And that was interesting because when it comes to Adam's fall, we see that if the serpent feels that he can attack the eternal Son of God, if he can attack Jesus Christ and try to attack him, why would he not then attack anyone else in all of God's creation? You have to think about that just logically. There are certain people we would never seek to attack um, or uh, have competition against. Uh, if there was a running race today and it was like, you know, $1,000, Mark, you can get $1,000. You have to pick someone in here that you can beat in a race. And I look out at the audience and I'm like, ah, that guy with the sweater on, I think I can take him, you know, he, he looks like a bit of a, a, a loser, uh, <laughs> you know, doesn't look in great shape and all that. You don't go after the person unless you think you can. I would, uh, I know who I would pick. I'd pick Ian. I'd smoke Ian. <laughs> the fact that the devil goes after the Lord of glory uh, tells you something about the fact that the devil doesn't consider anyone on earth someone beyond his reach. So when you look at the fall, he is a crafty foe, and he, he gets Adam to do what? He gets Adam to commit the sin that the serpent was guilty of. And what was that, as I said? It was authority. Adam was one under God's authority, and his sin is one of usurping that authority, trying to become the Lord where God was the Lord. And so he gets Adam to doubt God's word, and that is a matter of pride when you put someone else's words above God's word. And so he believed a lie instead of God. Now, I actually think that Adam, in his sin, transgressed all ten of the commandments. I have this in one of my books that actually was so poorly received, it went out of print. So I'm going to give it to you here. Uh, and I liked it, but uh, Crossway wrote, yeah, we're not reprinting this thing. I was like, yeah, but it has a catechism in it. And so nobody wants to read catechisms. You guys have to. I saw the book that you were given. Um, but in that book that you'll never be able to read, uh, I see, I show how Adam transgressed God's law. And when he broke 
um, God's law. He actually broke all 10 commandments. And it's quite interesting because his unbelief and his pride revealed what? A self-love, a self-seeking, a self-promotion, which are really violations of the first commandment. God comes first in the first commandment. Adam put himself first. And so as a prophet, priest, and king in God's temple, Adam was bound to worship God and uh, in a specific manner that God has said, which included what he should and should not do. But by eating from the forbidden tree, he transgressed proper worship laws. God said, this is how you are to live under my authority. And Adam actually tolerated false religion in the temple. When the serpent spoke, Adam should have snapped his neck off and killed him. He should have crushed the head of the serpent because that's what Christ had to do. But Adam didn't do what Christ ended up doing. And so he tolerates false religion in the temple, in the garden, and he didn't destroy the works of the devil. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. So he broke the second commandment, which is about worship. The third commandment, Adam as God's image bearing, remember there is in Luke's gospel the um, genealogy, and, and Adam is called the Son of God. And so as the Son of God, he is the perfect image bearer of God. And the third commandment is about image bearing. Not taking the name of the Lord in vain is about keeping God's name holy as an image bearer of God. And so not only did Adam not keep God's law, but he also did not bring glory to God in his image bearing in that instance where he broke the third commandment. In the fourth commandment about the Sabbath, remember the, the Sabbath rest in Hebrews 3 and 4 uh, that Adam enjoyed was a type of the eternal rest that we're going to enjoy. So when he sinned, he sinned by jeopardizing that eternal Sabbath rest for all of his descendants. Uh, because when sin comes into the world, we forfeit our rights to any of those blessings that God has promised. The fifth commandment is about honoring one's father and mother. Adam clearly did not honor his father. And remember, when you honor your father, what is the promise? That you would have long days in the land. Adam would have had long days if he'd honored his father, but he didn't. The sixth commandment, you shall not kill. Adam is the one described in Romans 5 as bringing death into the world through his sin. He was a mass murderer in the sense that his sin brought death to all. The seventh commandment, you're probably like, I've been waiting for this. There's no way you're going to be able to make the seventh commandment work. Well, with a very truncated, uh, pitiful understanding of the seventh commandment, you're right, I won't make that work. But remember, whatever you, whenever you see a, a commandment, and if you're talking about catechisms, the Westminster Larger Catechism shows you how the commandments are to be understood. It's really quite... Uh, glorious stuff. But whatever's forbidden is also positively stated. And the way in which you are to not commit adultery is to love your wife. And Adam actually failed to protect his wife in that moment where she was being seduced by the serpent. It was a failure to be a good husband. And that was a violation of the seventh word. The eighth commandment is stealing. Eve stole in taking the forbidden fruit, but we're told Adam was standing there with her, so he was guilty, and so he was also guilty of breaking the eighth commandment. The ninth commandment is bearing false testimony. 
Now, bearing false testimony not only means that we should not lie, but when there is a lie against God, we have a duty and responsibility to counter something. And so Satan questioned God's goodness to them. Adam should have stepped in and said that what he was saying was not true. He allowed untruth to continue in God's temple. And then the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Adam coveted that which did not belong to him, to be like God, to take from a tree God had not said, and so he broke the 10th commandment. There was a homicide, the killing of others, but there was also what theologians call a deicide, where we get the word deity from for God. There was a killing of God in the sense that that's what sin is. It's an attempted murder upon God, upon His glory and His majesty. And so when you think about Adam in the garden and you say, wow, it's, it's such a shame that you know, he should just take some fruit and, and all this mayhem that results from it, it wasn't a small sin. That's my point. It was a heinous, wicked, evil act in a context where he didn't need to act that way. Now, Maybe you're asking yourself, well, why would Adam actually choose to sin if he's in such a great context? Remember, context is everything in life, why we do or do not do certain things, you know? I, um, I come home, I open the mail, and it's a, a royalty check from PNR where a book long uh, published and I, I get these checks and sometimes it's like 120 US dollars and I'm so happy at these checks uh, because I like nice wine and so I come in I get my royalty check and I'm like Barb look I'm taking $40 of this to buy myself a nice wine and then my favorite soccer team's on and Liverpool's playing and and they're winning and I'm like oh and my children are uh, reading a book for the first time in their life and quietly and um, and my wife's like you know honey it, it just you know there are many great men out there but you surpass them all <laughs> and 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 I'm just and I'm really nice to everyone because everything is just going perfectly for me we know context is everything about our behavior I come home, I get the mail, conversely, open it up, and it's a speeding ticket. And this happened to me once. I pulled into an intersection, but someone kept running the, the, their light, so I had to back up because I was just going to get smoked. But the camera got me while I was in the middle of the section and, and sent me a, a, a ticket. So I get that ticket. I go in, and uh, my kids, for once, are running around fighting each other. There's knives. Um, and my wife is, is uh, ready to complain that I didn't do this, that, and the other. And uh, so I flip out, right? We, we know that context drives a lot of our behavior. Uh, and there are external factors. And I'm going to kind of highlight this because um, ultimately what's remarkable is that Adam had the previous context I was speaking about. And so it makes it hard to understand why he would sin when everything was going so well. We understand why we sin when things aren't going so well. But how is it that we sin when things are going so well? And it's a mystery. But the internal cause of Adam's sin was his free will. He, he, was, he, was, he was under no compulsion, and he made a decision. And there's really very little explanation why he would ever choose. We just don't know. Um, some theologians over the course of history, they're heretics like the Socinians, or they're maybe in error like the Arminians, said that God created Adam with an inclination to vice. 
And so there was a sort of inclination that was always there, whereas Reformed theologians have said there was no inclination to vice. It's, it's left to the realm of mystery why he would have. The external cause, however, the instrumental cause, the external one, is Satan's temptation. So why did Adam sin? Internally, it's, it's quite a mystery why someone who is holy but not given the grace of perseverance would sin. But we do know the external cause was Satan. And Thomas Watson makes this point. He says, the devil could not have forced him unless he had given consent. Satan was only a suitor to woo, not a king to compel. So was Satan in some sense responsible? As an external cause, yes. But an internal cause, Adam was not coerced like a king would with his subjects, only as a suitor to woo him. And so Adam was fully responsible. So next time you're a kid, you're sitting here, you're like, you know what, this is heavy stuff, this is beyond me, I'm going to give you something that actually might help you with your parents. Okay, when your parents get mad at you because you blame an external cause for why you sinned, you can say, actually, external causes are appropriate. I do take responsibility for the internal cause of my own nature, but there was an external cause, mom, and an external cause, and it was dad, or it was my brother, and they were being like Satan. They were compelling me to sin. And remember that family conference? Well, that's what the speaker said that external causes are uh, legitimate in terms of explaining why sin happens. Now, your parents might say you're still responsible because they also listen to the part of the talk where I say Adam was fully responsible. And so it's only going to half help you to maybe mitigate the punishment. Um, but we do believe that there are external factors for why people would sin. Are we always responsible? Yes. But are there external causes that sometimes uh, precipitate or sort of speed along or, or lead to a certain sin? The answer is yes. That's why if something causes you to sin, you cut it off. You get rid of it because there are things in life that we do need to get rid of. For some people, it is uh, alcohol. For some people, it's TVs. For some people, it's all sorts of external causes and whatever they may be. Now, just before we get to a little bit about sin's contagion, we have to remember that while this sin did come into the world, there is what theologians have also called a felix culpa, happy guilt, and it's been the response by some theologians to the origin of evil. So sin does its worst, but God always does His best because He can do no other. And without the entrance of sin, perhaps some of God's attributes as revealed to us would have been hidden in the depths of the adorable Godhead. And... Uh, this is something that Samuel Rutherford brings out in his works, but also John Owen. John Owen says, The greatest evil in the world is sin, and the greatest sin was the first, that is, Adam's sin. And yet Gregory, early church father, feared not to cry, O happy fault, which found such a Redeemer. Samuel Rutherford, as I was saying, John Duncan, he was a great Scottish theologian, referenced in Samuel Rutherford as saying something to the effect of the permission of sin is adorable. The, the actual fact of sin is abominable. So the permission of it's adorable. What does he mean by that? He says, well, there would have been no display of some of the divine attributes if sin had not entered into the world. They would have been conserved forever in the depths of the Godhead. Like 
God's mercy. Adam, the question whether Adam would have understood God's mercy before the fall or after, and so when he sinned, did he have some thought that maybe God would be merciful to him even though he sinned is an interesting question, but the point is we know for certain that because of sin entering the world, we see God's mercy in Christ on a level that Adam could never have experienced such mercy in the garden because there was no need for mercy before sin. So you can see an example there. The other thing that theologians have said is that what we have gained in Christ is far greater than what we would have gained if Adam had persevered in faithfulness and righteousness. We actually gain something that is called the beatific vision, the blessed vision where we get to actually see the face of God in Jesus Christ. And so because of sin, Christ comes into the world and lives and dies, is raised again, and we will behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which perhaps would not have happened, and another interesting question, if sin had not taken place. Um, so uh, there are some sort of happy guilts, we call it, uh, Adam's sin is bad, very bad, but God's blessing and grace is very good. And so the very good that he says in Genesis before the fall doesn't compare to the very good that God says when Christ comes out of the tomb. That is the very good that wipes out every very bad that you can conceive of if that resurrection is applied to you. Now, something of sin's contagion. I don't know, we've got, it looks like we've got 10 minutes left, so I'll uh, motor on through. You'll get everything about sin's contagion in 10 minutes. Okay, I got 12. I was just saw the. <laughs> the uh, I'm not a big Lord of the Rings person. I, I don't dislike it, I just don't, I just don't know it. Um, and I know that most people in Christian circles have read like volumes of it, movies. It looks great stuff. Uh, it's just too long for me. Um, but there is a section in Lord of the Rings, um, Aragorn, fearful of the power of the ring over him, and knowing how it had affected his ancestor Isildur, um, here's Arwen say to him, why do you fear the past? You are Isildur's heir, not Isildur himself. You are not bound to his fate. And Aragorn responds, the same blood flows in my veins, the same weakness, which is quite profound. Um, we are all bound apart from the grace of God and apart from Christ to the same fate because the same blood, that is, the same sinful nature flows in our veins, so to speak. And we, by nature, became idolaters. In fact, we became sinners, and every sin is antinomianism because every sin is against God's law. And if you just take the etymology of antinomianism, it's against the law. So we are all by nature antinomians. We all by nature hate God's law, which is interesting when people say that, you know, the great problem in the church is not antinomianism, it's legalism. And I'm like, well, if you believe sin is against God's law, there's never a time when the church will not have antinomian tendencies. And legalistic tendencies are also very antinomian in their core. But the point is that we are all antinomians by nature. And actually, every sin is called a secret atheism. That is to say, every sin is an implicit adoration of Satan, according to Stephen Charnock. It's a secret atheism. You are preferring 
someone else or something else before God. And that is a, a secret adoration of Satan and a love of his ways. Now, given this, when we look at the doctrine of sin, we see how it's affected us and it has made us not only guilty but polluted. And what happened is after the sin that entered the world through Adam, we all in one sense lost the image of God, but we are still those who bear the image of God. And I see this as a major topic of confusion sometimes. Do we still possess the image of God? The answer is yes and no. We don't possess the image of God as Adam possessed it in perfect integrity without sin. We don't possess it that way. You look at Adam and you should see an exact representation of God's moral righteousness in that man. And that's what we see in Christ. He is the perfect image of God, the visible image of the invisible God. That's what the image of God is meant to be. We don't possess that, but we still have the sort of remains of the image of God. That is why in, in Genesis 9-6, the, the death penalty is based upon, we still retain something of the image of God. And James talks about how we curse people made in the image of God. There's still a, a sense of the image of God in all of us, even though it's been defaced in some part by sin. So that's just a clarification when I say we bear the image of God. What do I mean by that? Now, that means we still have polluted hearts. Thomas Watson said, Our heart is the devil's shop where all mischief is framed. And so when you look at what this sin is, you, you can't really get any better than what David highlights in Psalm 51. And what he does in Psalm 51, which you all know so well, is that he recognizes his sins, but he gets to the root of the issue. You see, the vocabulary that David uses for sin is, is the most graphic vocabulary you'll really find anywhere in God's Word for sin. And it's only outdone in that psalm by the graphic nature of God's grace in that psalm. But in verse 5, he says, and this really explains everything else regarding his sin. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Once you understand that as a Christian, you will understand the rest of that psalm in terms of everything David says about himself that's sinful. John Murray, he has a really great statement on Genesis 6, 5, and 8, 21, which talks about the inclinations of our hearts are only evil continually, uh, even from the time that we were born. And he makes several appropriate comments that uh, will help us. He says, there is intensity. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. It's, it's intense sin. It's great, the wickedness of man in the earth. There's an inwardness, the imagination of the thoughts of the heart. So it's intense, it's inward, and then there is not only an inwards, there is also, and he says that the imagination of the thoughts of his heart is an expression that's unsurpassed in the usage of Scripture. And it indicates that the most rudimentary movement of thought was evil because it's the imagination of the thoughts of the heart. And then there is totality, every imagination. Every imagination, it gets right to the core, but it's the totality and the constancy of that is sinful. He says continually there is this constancy, every imagination always. 
and there is, is exclusiveness. It's only evil. Every imagination is always only evil. And then there is early manifestation from his youth. So that's really quite scary when you think about what God sees when he sees a person apart from the redeeming grace of God. He sees a person who left to himself or herself every imagination of our hearts apart from the grace of God would only be evil continually, always and forever. And I would say would get progressively worse over time. There's a certain sense in which sin hardens and gets worse. And people's imaginations from a young age become more and more corrupt as they are left to themselves. The goodness of God to humanity is that He does not leave us, even in our state of nature, to be as bad as we would be apart from His restraining grace. And I believe that every single human being who's ever been born into this world has been the recipient of God's goodness in His restraining grace in allowing wicked people to have good thoughts where they love their children or they have decent marriages or they do something good. That's God's goodness to everyone, including His people, by restraining the evil that is in our hearts. The point that I'm making is we don't even know, even those of us who became Christians later in life, how truly evil our hearts could be because God has been restraining the evil in every person's heart who's ever lived. We would start, I think, vomiting if we knew what our hearts were capable of apart from any intervention by God. I really believe that. It would be so horrifying. So what is sin? Is it some alien substance that enters us? And the answer is no. Um, it is what has been called a privation. It's the absence of a quality normally present. It is a lack of righteousness but instead of having a lack of righteousness, it is then an inclination to do what is evil. So two things. You lack the righteousness. So Adam was made righteous. He was made holy and righteous. We lack that righteousness. But instead of having that righteousness, we trade it for that which is evil. Bavink says that sin accordingly has to be understood and described neither as an existing thing. It's not like some substance that comes into you. Nor as being in things that exist. It's rather a defect, a deprivation, an absence of good, a weakness, imbalance. Just as blindness is a deprivation of sight. Uh, there's a term that you've probably heard. I don't know if you like the term or dislike the term. I don't really care. That's why I'm here. I, I say things and then I leave on Monday and I get out of here. And pastor, I think I just heard, has been on a bit of a break, uh, has to pick up the pieces. There's a phrase uh, where people say, instead of saying like um, David in Psalm 51, you know, about being brought forth in iniquity and, and just how black and wicked he is, they say, oh, we're broken and uh, all of the like smart reform people go, oh, that's so like moral therapeutic deism. It's so sappy, you know, this broken thing and stuff. So, um, I, and I understand. I don't like the way it's used in the sort of like, I don't want to say anything really bad about myself, so I'll just say I'm broken. And it kind of mitigates the real evil that can still be in our hearts. However, however, <laughs> the problem is, is that brokenness is actually a very good descriptor of sin. It's not everything we can say about sin, but it is actually a very good descriptor because 
when a man is trying to walk, imagine someone with a broken leg trying to make his way to the hospital after a terrible accident. There's nothing lacking in the man in terms of his humanness. He is a human being. There's no alien substance that's entered into him. But what sin is, it's like that broken leg. It's an inability for us to actually live the way that God intended to. We are still fully human, but we are broken in the sense that we don't function as we ought. Now, in the case of the man who is supposed to be walking to the hospital, hobbling, as it were, to get his leg fixed, we are more like a man with a broken leg who is walking actually to his executioner rather than to the remedy which is at the hospital. And it's only the grace of God that actually takes us to the place where we can be healed. But if you hear someone say, oh, we're broken, rebuke them and then explain what it should mean by broken. That would be my suggestion. Or just not say anything at all because it'll be too confusing. But this actually is something that's based upon Scripture. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 9, Paul speaks of this privation, this weakness that we have, as well as our positive inclination towards unrighteousness. So in Romans 5, 6, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So we're weak, but we're also ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, so you can be weak, ungodly, and a sinner. It's all true. Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So we are weak, we lack that righteousness, but we're also ungodly and sinners. We do that which is wrong. And I think... That's the important point that Paul's trying to make. And so what ends up happening to sinners who are saved by God? We become godly. We become the opposite of what is described here. We become strong again. We become godly and we become righteous. So if you don't believe me, if you keep on reading in Romans, you get to chapter 15, verse 14. And Paul says something that we would never say unless we were confronted with this verse of people in the church. I'm convinced people don't like talking like this. And what is that? Imagine I were to say, uh, people go, oh, what's your congregation like? And you said, you know, my congregation, they are just filled with goodness. What would people do? They'd laugh, ha ha, good one, yeah. Now tell us what they're really like. Well, just listen to Romans 15, 14. What does the gospel do? This is all at the end of everything that God's done and Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So what is sin? Sin is a, we have sins of omission, the things we fail to do because of that privation, that lack of righteousness. And we have sins of commission, those things that we do. What does the gospel do? It heals us so that we gain that righteousness, that holiness, that goodness, that then enables us to do the things that are righteous. So in Ephesians 4, you look at the thief, let the thief no longer steal, but work so that he may have something to share, right? Every sin that's listed is countered by the opposite effect 
of that which is righteous. When I was young, I said one day, I'm not going to sin today. I'm actually not going to sin. I'm going to actually just stay in my room and not sin today. I wasn't a Christian. I knew what Christianity was, but I thought, I'm not going to sin today. And um, let's say I'd been able to stay in my room, apart from the fact that I possessed original guilt and I was still guilty anyway. Let's say I stayed in my room, did nothing but hid in the corner and didn't say a single word, didn't even think a thought and just stayed there and didn't do anything wrong. Would I have sinned? And there's a certain sense in which what God requires of us is not merely not sinning, but the positive is enjoined, the committing of that which is good, which is righteous. So you can go and be a monk and not do anything bad, but are you doing that which is good? Because the only way to actually deal with sin in the full analysis of it is not to hide from it, but to replace that which is evil with that which is good. And so sin is, is, is a parasite of the good. Remember, Satan was a holy angel before he became evil. And so sin needs good for its expression. It only exists by and with any connection with that which is good. And it borrows from the good. It's not some independent evil, but it's actually something that steals from that which is good. So substantially, sin uh, Bavink says, has neither removed anything from humanity nor introduced anything into it. We are the same person, but now walking not toward God, but away from Him to destruction. That's what sin does to us. It removes from us that which is righteous. And when you remove from us what is righteous, we will then be inclined towards something else. We'll never just say, oh, well, I guess I'm in a neutral state. That does not exist. So just by way of conclusion and application, um, we don't know when sin emerged. The, the mystery of why the Satan as a good angel and the third of the angels would ever uh, want to usurp authority and have pride, we don't know. We don't know why Adam would have an inclination towards doing this. We know the external cause. But whatever the case is, we have to affirm that it has no right to existence. Sin is illegal. And it came into the world without motivation, but now is the motivation for all human thought and actions apart from the grace of God. From an abstract point of view, it's nothing but a privation, a lack of righteousness, but in a certain sense, it's a power that seems to control everyone. And we could also say it has no independent principle of its own. It's not like some principle out there. It, was, it, it arose within an angel and then within Adam. And yet it's a principle that devastates the entire creation. It lives off the good. And yet it fights to the point of its own destruction. And so what is the good news? The good news is that sin, it is nothing. It has nothing. And it cannot do anything without the good that God has created. And yes, it organizes everything in rebellion against God, but God will overcome it. Again, sorry for the Herman Bavink fest, but he says, sin is the greatest contradiction tolerated by God in his creation. Yet it's used by him in the way of justice and righteousness as an instrument for his glory. Now, what do we mean by that? In his implacable hatred towards Christ, he sought to have him killed, just as the religious leaders did. 
And yet it was Christ's death that defeated Satan. So you see sin doing its worst. And it does its worst against God's best. That is the Son of God. And yet, as sin kills Christ in a manner of speaking, Christ kills sin. God, in His infinite wisdom, uses sin for His own glory and our good. Luther said about faith, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. But sin, we may say too, is a busy, active, mighty thing. And those who do not see it as an enemy will soon be destroyed by it. Um, John Bunyan has a, a, a little poem. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm going to close with uh, a sort of flip poem. It's not really a poem, but I, I, it's my sort of reflection on it. He says, Sin is the dare of God's justice. It is the rape of His mercy. It is the jeer of His patience, the slight of His power, and the contempt of His love. But then when you look at the gospel, you can see that Christ is the satisfaction of God's justice. Just as sin is the dare of God's justice, Christ is the satisfaction of God's justice. Christ is the crown of God's mercy. If sin is the rape of God's mercy, Christ is the crown of God's mercy. If sin is the jeer of His patience, Christ is the arm of God's patience. The Lord's arm is not too short to save if sin is the slight of His power, Christ is the effusion of His power. That even in weakness, Christ was able to overcome sin, which is so powerful that even the weakness of God, Christ crucified in weakness, destroys that which is so powerful. And if sin is the contempt of His love, Christ is the face of His love. Sin does its worst, but God in Christ does his best. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You. We thank You that sin does not have the last word, that You have the last and better word through Christ Jesus. We see our sin as that which robs us of that righteousness that we initially in Adam would have been created with and makes us prone to so much evil, and yet we thank You for all that You have done through us through Christ where our wickedness has been turned in many respects to righteousness. And we praise you as we become more like Christ. We see the defeat of sin, not just in the forgiveness of our sins, but in the destruction of our sins by the Spirit. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.